Good evening and welcome. Good evening and welcome to House Ibrahim Gospel Blog Talk Radio. Coming to you from 231 6th Avenue. Oh, in the big city of Beatrice, Alabama. We have a great show lineup for you tonight. Um, civil rights versus human rights. We are expecting uh, some callers today. And we are going to be talking about civil rights versus human rights. You stay with us as we get ready to do our broadcast. Um, Today is uh, Friday, February the 15th. The time is 6 p.m. Human Rights versus Civil Rights Conference call-in, Monday, February the 15th, 6 p.m., Central Standard Time, National Association of Black Defenders. We are being brought to you by the National Association of Black Defenders. Uh, we are located at 1629 K Street, Northwest Suit, 300, Washington, D.C., 20006. Our telephone number for 202-852-4816 or 561-236-2024. If you need legal counsel anywhere in the continental United States, you can call 202-852-4816. Human rights versus civil rights. Call in. You can call in to speak to the host, yours truly, Freddie Howard, at 713-955-0464. The conference planning is for today, February the 15th. Uh, uh, today, uh, this is our work schedule for January, February, and March, and we will be dealing with human rights versus civil rights for the next two months, January, February, March. March and the last part of February. We started in January. Um, The Human Rights Civil Rights Conference planning is January 11th. We had that first one already. The Human Rights Civil Rights planning Monday, January 25th. That one has already transpired. Human Rights versus Civil Rights Conference planning Monday, February 15th, which is today. The third in a series of calls and talks and information about uh, civil rights versus human rights. Uh, Human rights conference planning for Monday, March the 1st will be our final uh, call-in program on that. But then on um, March the uh, 22nd will be one more. And then finally, our conference on the 28th, 29th, 30th, and 31st. And that is to be announced. We also have, um, as you're going to be hearing from, is a YouTube video a YouTube video uh, dealing with the uh, uh, Civil Rights Museum uh, as well as a video on inside the Center for Civil and Human Rights. That runs about four or five minutes, and uh, we hope that uh, you will be able to uh, check that out as well. Now, let us get back to uh, our uh, broadcast and what we got planned for today. Um, if you want to call in and talk about civil rights versus human rights, this is the number for you to call, 347-202-0317. 347-202-0317. 
Today is February the 15th, and we will be on. We will be on for a total of two hours. Two hours we will be on, and we hope that you will be able to call in. But we are going to impart with you a great deal of uh, information. Uh, we're going to be running some ads as well about the uh, um, National Association of Black Defenders. All right, let's go to um, the uh, National Association of Black Defenders. Let's talk a little bit about it. Uh, first, uh, the National Association of Black Defenders, as we say, we're located in Washington, and you can get in touch with us at 202-852-4816. What are we about? What are we about? The National Association of Black Defenders incorporate our mission to build a better society through social change, our purpose to defend the truth while standing on the promise of freedom and justice for all. We are a Christian social nonviolent organization. Our nonviolent movement is for social change. The National Association of Black Defenders Incorporated. We stand for the truth and on the truth for social, economic, and environmental justice for all. We stand on the truth for those issues. The promise of freedom and justice for all have not been met. There are still people battling that issue across the country and across the world. We have to come together as a people and understand the cause of justice and what is taking place. We recognize the social unrest in our country as we just went through a turmoilous, tumultuous time here during this election in this country here. We recognize our society has a problem. We recognize we don't have a fair social, economic, and environmental justice system for the United States of America. We want to defend and give a hand for our social, economic, and environment justice and to rebuild the wall for targeting issues such as criminal justice, prison reform, human rights, police brutality, false imprisonment, racial profiling, community policing with mental health co-responders, re-entry back into society, poverty discrimination, health environment in which to live, learn, and work livable wages, pay equity to employment, health care, housing, education, and accountability. There's a move afoot now by the new administration to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. But there are folks complaining, saying that since the pandemic, there's not a whole lot of businesses doing business, that that would be a hardship to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour for small, business, for small businesses. That is a bridge we have to cross when that time comes. This That in itself is a um, total um, question that needs to be answered and dealt with. This is a nonviolent movement for saving lives, making a footprint for justice. However, we have to understand justice ourselves. Therefore, we have to educate. The enemy might change his tricks, but we're going to use the same strategy that were used in the 60s. When we talk about the enemy, we're talking about people do not want to progress in a manner that is beneficial to humanity. We want people to to get to understand clearly. We ain't talking about no total progressive, far left or, or far right type. We're talking about human needs and decency and needs of human beings met in a equitable and, and, and viable way. How to be effective in this modern day nonviolent movement 
and not destroy anything? That is the question. It is still through love. The only way we can reveal is to love and care for each other. Infiltrate the nation with love. We can rebuild this nation with love. Our system is broken. Until we fix the problem, we can't move forward. What has happened? Let's look at what has happened to our spiritual and mindset have been disturbed. Look what just happened in on, on, on January the 6th when the United States tried to follow through on certifying an election for the new president of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Look what happened. The Capitol was stormed by a variety of people with a variety of grievances and fights in their, in their heart. It was terrible. People lost their lives. It is time for one to step up. God will make another. It is time for us to step up from the pulpit to the door. We need leadership and willing vessels to get in, get in the hearts of people to let them know we are not going to take this anymore. This is a term that has been used that we're not going to take this anymore. This is simply saying, go to Christ. Go to your knees. Love people. Care for people. Do for people. Treat for them just the way you want them to be treated. It is time out for passing the buck. We need leaders and pastors to come out of the pulpit, get on the front line, help us in the National Nonviolent Movement for Social Change, because we are up against the mindset. The mindset has to be changed. That mindset is hostile to the change in progress, the change in demographics of race and colors in this country. People are getting uh, themselves all wired up because they think they are losing something. But change is always happening. Change is constant. America in this society has been mostly dominated and controlled by Anglo-white America. There are some other people that have power positions and wealth and stuff in this country, but the majority of everything in this country is dominated, run, and controlled by your and my white brothers and sisters. That's the way it is, and that's the way it is, and it, has, it is gradually changing. That is what bringing on the onslaught of fear from those that things are changing from what they are used to. The mindset has to be changed. Until we get that mindset, until we can penetrate that mindset, change has to take place inside, outside, before it takes place on the outside. It means start in your heart. We start in our communities. We start in our homes. That love will expand to the outside. We want to educate law enforcement officers on how to deal with people. We want to educate our people about our rights. We want to equip and build our people toward reformation. We have to move expeditiously on this nonviolent movement. One of our goals is to have foot soldiers in all 50 states. We need foot soldiers that are going to have the right message to hand. Social dissonance may have separated us from physical but not spiritually. That is another thing. Social distancing, what's taking place in this country due to the COVID-19 virus and the number of deaths. Over 407,000 people have died already. It is awesome. But the thing about that is change can still come. It must become spiritual. Jesus said, Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. We are looking to get to the other side because we want to hear him say, We fought a good fight. We kept the faith. Join with us in the nonviolent movement for chosen change and to build and grow. To build and grow. The declaration from this organization is, I declare on this day, uh, June 20, 
5, 2020, we will take up the range of National Association of Black Defenders for social change, economic, and environmental justice to bring change for our people, even those on the streets. Please stand behind our leadership. This is the message that you've just heard from Dr. Michael McCorvey, Sr., President of the National Association of Black Defenders. This is what we are about. This is what we are about. Social, economic, and environmental justice, criminal justice, and prison reform, community policing to include mental health co-responders, training for social change, human rights, and equity for all. Human rights and equity for all. Let's look at some of the resources. If you would like to support, you can make a donation to the National Association of Black Defenders. All you have to do is go to our website and click on Donate. Our vision and target issues, targeted issues, we have covered a, a bunch of them. I'll remind you again, police brutality, false imprisonment, racial profiling, mass incarceration, and the list goes on and on. Housing, pay equity, livable wages, human environment to live and learn and work, a clean environment, that is. Our executive board members are Dr. Michael McCorvey, Sr., uh, Dr. Clayton Howard, Deputy Commission for Human Rights, Crystal Montgomery, co-founder and senior advisor to the president, Kentala Humphreys, J.D., legal advisor, Herman Jones, evangelist, author, Gloria Woods, Niran Tabitha, and yours truly, Freddie Howard. There are other members of this team that are working to make this come about. Some quotes and some things from our news. The following document contains a quote in news article about racism, social, economic, and environmental justice, criminal justice, and prison reform, community policing, and equity in America. Quote excerpt from news documents. Powerful information here for you. Peace on the left, justice on the right. Let's do this another way. Let's vote. Educate yourself. We will hit them in the polls. Let's do this peacefully. George would not want people to be violent. No justice, no peace. Prosecute the police. Keep the brother's name ringing. George Floyd, stop looting. Stop protesting. Here's a point that I want you guys to understand. Change is afoot. And change is constant. Change is always taking place. Do not harden your heart against your brothers or your sisters. There are only two types of human beings in the world. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. God is for all of them. God allowed the Gentiles to come in in numbers while the Jews were set back because they failed to do what God wanted them to do. But God still loves his people, the Jewish people, and he loves all humanity, and he wants us to continue to do what's right. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. How about that? What situation are you in now? Are you dealing with COVID? Are you dealing with no housing? Are you dealing with no job? Are you dealing with incarceration? Uh, are you trying, do you need a lawyer? What is your situation? There are a number of us that can't breathe, but there are some of us breathing better than the others. The reason we should never be who we wanted and dreamed of being is you kept your knees on our neck. That's a word from uh, Al Sharpton. And guess what? All nations, all people, I don't care who they are, uh, have had somebody on their neck. 
Look at the Indians. Look what was done to the Indians. Look what was done to us as African Americans. Look what did to the Jewish people. What Hitler killed off uh, millions of them over in Germany. Look what was done to the Irish. Look what was done to the Italians. Humanity has put itself against each other in so many ways. Here's a quote from Reverend Barber on protest. What we are seeing in public mourning that comes from trauma, but because we have listened to the words, listened to the wounds of this nation from California to Carolina, from Maine to Mississippi, we know where to look for hope. Now is the time to unite our collective powers and demand transformative change. Now is the time to revive the heart of America's democracy. We are going to put a face on poverty. Barbara said in an interview, we are going to show America to herself. That is one of the things that you are looking at right now in America. On this Monday, on this Monday, you can decide not to wait for recommendations from the advisory panel. You can begin to take action yourself on the use of force, on the use of force, on, on prison incarceration, on hunger, on poverty. What will you do today? What will you do today to change what is taking place in this country? All right. One of the major concerns that folks that want to ignore is the issue of racism or the word systemic racism. In other words, all aspects of American life existed. There are some elements of racism in it. And it continues on a daily basis. Racism is a system of structural opportunity assigned in values based on the social interpretation of how one looks which what we uh, call race. That unfairly disadvantage some individuals and communities, unfairly advantage to other individuals and communities, and saps the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources. The waste of human resources. Number one, stop racism. That is an evil that we can do without. That is an evil that we can do without. We don't need it. Criminal justice and prison reform. Our criminal justice system must keep all communities safe, foster prevention and rehabilitation, ensure fair and equal justice. But in too many places and in too many ways, our system is falling apart of that mandate with the devastating consequences. We are not doing what we should do and so forth, fairness and justice and incarceration. The United States is saddled with an outdated, unfair, bloated criminal justice system that drains resources and disrupts communities. Every once in a while you hear a powerful story of someone that was improperly incarcerated and yet through this aisles of times and they struggled, they somehow made it through. People of color, particularly Native Americans, Black and Latino people, Latino people have felt the impact of discrimination within the criminal justice system. Many immigrants experience mandatory detention, racial profiling, and due process violations because of laws and policies that violate their human rights. The principle of equal justice, fair treatment, and proportionate under our criminal justice system. The good news is that we as a nation are at a unique moment in which time in which there is a strong public bipartisan support for criminal justice reform. 
that case on some places in some time, but there has been some criminal justice reform. Some took place during the past administration of President Donald Trump. Prison reform is the attempt to improve conditions inside prison, improve the effectiveness of a penal system, or implement alternatives to incarceration. It also focuses on ensuring the reinstatement of those whose lives are impacted by crimes. Small communities, large communities, country communities, urban communities. And what it takes is on both sides of the aisle, all people in concern, on the right, on the left, Democratic, Independent, uh, Republican, uh, the president, all working together to solve an issue. You can't go in your corner, and I go in my corner, and they go in their corner, and everybody else go in their corner, and here we sit in there, everybody in our corner, and we won't come out and solve the issues. We have to work together, work together. How can we help prison reform? Get involved in criminal justice reform. How can we help prison reform? Get involved in criminal justice reform. Make our voice heard. Helping in mass incarceration by letting our representatives know that we stand for justice in criminal justice policy. Donate, support the sentencing projects with a tax deductible contribution to help us work for a fair, effective criminal justice system. You can do that right here at the National Association of Black Defenders. We are a 501c tax exempt organization. You can make a contribution to fight for prison reform. You can advocate, advocacy. You can proclaim it. Just like I'm here on here proclaiming human rights and talking about human rights versus civil rights. I'm at this radio station, House of Dressing Gospel, Broad Talk Radio, for National Association of Black Defenders. It's proclaiming, advocating for, is a means of influencing in your community, elected officials, to embrace issues you care about. With over 2 million Americans incarcerated and even ever-growing number of people being released back into our communities, this is an opportunity to be advocating for reform in the criminal justice system. And it's more important than ever. When you advocate for criminal justice reform, be sure you have compelling arguments, facts to back it up, relatable background and human connection. Prison advocates listen to the needs of human aid and their families and work with official politicians to resolve practical and legislation problems in the prison system. There are problems in the prison system. Go to prison. I worked in prison at Holman Prison for 29 years. I know personally about what it's like to be inside a prison to deal with inmates, to deal with death row inmates. Advocate. Advocates might promote education and rehabilitation programs for inmates. Lobby for prison reform, provide inmates with information and resources. This position also might include studying past current issues to develop prisoner rights defense strategies. This job can be stressful, especially since there might be more work than the advocate can realize or realistically handle. Working inside a prison and as a police officer is a very stressed position. That stress weighs on the heart, causing a high rate of heart attack and high blood pressure due to the stress of the environment in which they work in, which is a prison or police office. These are police officers, prisoners, and firefighters are the highest stress positions you, you can work in. But it can be alleviated, and there's ways that you can deal with that stress. 
Prison advocates need excellent, excellent oral and written communication. Do you write well? Do you communicate well? Can you speak well? Do you write well? Can you do a broadcast? Along with empathy and problem-solving ability, volunteers can receive in-depth experience working with inmates and their families. Aspiring advocates might visit prison, participate in fundraising, interview, correspond with prisoners, and provide information to the public. Get inside of the situation. Find out what is happening. Then you, in turn, can deal with it. All right. Overall, prison is America a flawed in many ways. One flaw that plagues our system of punishment is racial bias. <clears throat> our prison system has been problem and it desperately needs to reform, and it desperately needs reform. Some of these problems include inhuman living conditions, inhumane living conditions, racial bias, increased risk of reincarnation, transforming the system. You can transform the system. How to how can we change the system set up controls black people by radical dismantling it? Why prison reforms matter in America? Reentry back into society. That is a critical problem right there. People come out of prison, they have a stigma, got a target on their back. Oh, he's been in prison. They can't don't hire him. There are ways to alleviate those problems. You need to get involved. In legal bias against formerly incarcerated people. Look at that. In legal bias against formerly incarcerated people. Establish protective legal status. Powerful information here. All of these links you can go to to understand. You can involve. You can volunteer. Sign up right here on the National Association of Black Defenders. All we need is your name, email, area code, street address, Second uh, Street, city you live in, the zip code, uh, area you're interested in. The days of the week in which you can work, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's all simple. You can get involved. How do you contact us here at National Association of Black Defenders? You can contact us at telephone number 202-852-4816. You can check the National at lobbies.com. Let me check the phone here. Hold on just a second. Hello? Hello? Yeah. Yeah, Edwin, I'm here. Okay, I'm on I'm I'm on I'm on the radio. What you got going? No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I, 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 yeah, I was uh, just trying to um, get an update from you. I had uh, was going to go get some things for the greenhouse, but I went ahead and used the soil that was already in the greenhouse and went ahead and started planting the stuff that I was going to plant. No, I used the soil that we dug up from the outside uh, along on those trees that we used in the, in the uh, earthworm bed. I used that and I uh, went ahead and uh, filled up about uh, 60 or 70 cups, and I planted uh, two types of onions to set out in those first beds across there. Another thing, we we got we got 47 cabbages need to be harvested. Uh, it's going to be cold at night, but in the morning I'm going to get up and 
uh, probably put some of them on the inside in the greenhouse. And uh, yeah, yeah. Well, just make your list in 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 the in, in, in however many you want. It's forty three heads out there. Got to be, yeah. She don't probably hung up. You probably have to call again. All right. Okay. All right. That was my coworker at the uh, aquaponic and greenhouse unit there at uh, the school where I work. I am the CEO of uh, um, work with the uh, Pacer Corporation, dealing with gardeners and stuff like that. It's community service. In fact, that's something you can do uh as a uh as a person that uh that need to do some things and so forth as uh community service you can uh um support in that way uh as a community service we're going to um upload a civil rights uh human rights uh, brief uh m p three here it's gonna take a few minutes for it to uh upload but we're going to go ahead and upload it, and we're going to play it in a few minutes. But we're going to go ahead and upload it here at the radio station while we're in the studio here. Uh, it should take about uh, maybe 10 minutes or 15 minutes or so for that to be uploaded. All right. Let's talk about um, what is the difference between human rights and civil rights. We go through this each time that we do the broadcast. Remember now, remember you can call in, you can call in, you can call in to the radio station at 347-202-0317. It is important that if you'd like to call in, that you can call in. What is the difference between human rights and civil rights? Have you ever wondered what the difference was between a human right and a civil right? After all, if some Americans have to fight to obtain civil rights as reason as the late 20th century, what are all these human rights we and other nations are enforcing in their countries through military action? Is there a difference between the two terms? In simpler terms, the difference between human rights and civil rights is why you you have them. Human rights arise simply by being a human being. Let's do that one more time. Human rights arise simply because of being a human being. Civil rights, on the other hand, arise only by virtue of a legal grant of that right, such as the rights imparted on American citizens by the Constitution. The U.S. Constitution guarantees certain rights for individuals in this country, such as the right to vote. That right to vote can be abridged and broken by an incarceration for a federal crime. You have to, once you get out, you got to fight to get that right back. It gives you the right. Let's look at human rights. Human rights are generally thought of as the most fundamental rights. They include the right to life, education, protection from torture, 
free expression and fair trial. Many of these rights bleed into civil rights, but they are considered to be necessities of the human experience. As the concept of human rights, we are conceived shortly after the World War II, particularly in regards to the treatment of human existence. As the concept of human rights, we are conceitedly shorter after World War II, with particular regard to the treatment of laws of Jews. Remember, we talked briefly about how, what was done to the Jews over in Germany, how many of them killed? Millions of them. And other groups by the Nazis. In 1948, the United States General Assembly adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, cementing their foundation in international law and policy. That's why in this country, or uh, any country that is violating human rights, any other nation on earth can come in and get in that government stuff for treating people inhumane. I don't care where it is. You remember Africa and apartheid? Remember civil rights in this country? Human rights are basic rights granted to human beings simply because they are human beings. Let's look at civil rights. Civil rights, on the other hand, are those rights that one enjoys by virtue of citizenship in a particular nation or state. In America, civil rights have the protection of the U.S. Constitution and many state constitutions. Civil rights protect citizens from discrimination and grant certain freedoms, like free speech, due process, equal protection, the rights against the cell, the incrimination, and so forth. In other words, you have a right to not incriminate yourself, and so forth. Civil rights can be thought of as an agreement between the nation, the state, and the individual decision that they govern. We are all governed under civil rights of the United States of America and as a citizen of the country of America. International distinctions. In an international framework, civil rights derive from the constitutional laws on each country. Each country has uh, uh, laws that govern their country, which human rights are considered universal to all beings. As a result, international players are less likely to take action to enforce a nation's violation of its own civil rights. It takes a pretty good country to come in and say something to a country how they're treating people about their civil rights. But anybody can step in when you start violating people's human rights. That's universal but more likely to respond to human rights violations. While human rights are universal in all countries, civil rights vary greatly from one nation to the next. No nation may rightfully deprive a person of human rights, but different nations can grant or deny different civil rights and liberties. They do what they want to to you when it comes to uh, civil rights. If you believe you are someone in your uh, known to have been the victim of violation of either civil or human rights, you should contact your attorney. You can contact uh, the National Association at 202-852-4816 and deal with the issue of human rights, uh, civil rights. All right, we have a caller coming in. Good morning, good evening. Welcome to House of the Gospel Blog Talk Radio. We're dealing with civil rights versus human rights. Uh, do you want to talk today? Welcome. How you doing? Hello. Hello. Hello, Eric. I'm doing. Hello. Yeah. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Oh, hi. This is this is Erica. I was just listening to you all. 
Well, uh, Erica, guess what? I am absolutely alone, but I have been going at it now for nearly almost an hour. Uh, oh, wow. Nobody has called in. I have been doing all of it by myself. I've been covering it all for the last, uh, ever since I've been on, ever since 6 o'clock. Uh, Michael okay. hasn't even called in yet. Uh, but anyway, okay. uh, we are talking about uh, human rights versus civil rights. And uh, I am at the point now of uh, uh, breaking down the differences between uh, civil rights and human rights. I was had just finished the international distinction. Uh, and uh, we have a phone call uh, that Dr. McCorver that we play here periodically, uh, urging people when they feel that their civil rights or human rights have been violated to get in touch with the National Association of Black Defenders. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing all right. How are you? Well, I'm doing fine, except that uh, I look like I'm carrying this load now, just me and you. <laughs> How you like that? <laughs> Well, that's all right. I'm looking uh, to be educated. Yeah. Um, from your perspective, if you want to make a comment um, in regards to civil rights and human rights, uh, do you, do you understand the thoroughly difference between the two, civil and human rights? I don't. Okay. Here's the opportunity. I will begin with human rights. Human rights are generally thought of as the most fundamental rights. They include the rights of life, education, protection from torture, free expression, fair trial. Many of these rights bleed into civil rights, but they are considered to be necessities of the human existence. The rights of human rights come basically because of you as a human being. As a concept, human rights were conceived shortly after World War II, particularly in regards to the treatment of the Jews and other groups by the Nazis. In 1948, the United States General Assembly adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, cementing their foundation in international law and policy. And to put it in simple terms, the difference between human rights and civil rights is why you have the term human rights are simply for being a human being. That's all it is, right. the rights of a human being. Civil rights, on the other hand, arise from by virtue of a legal grant of that right, such as the rights imparted on American citizens by the U.S. Constitution. In America, a country or a state or a region gives you civil rights. Uh, that's just rights of uh, uh, to not to be incarcerated, the right to have an attorney or uh, uh, different basic things like that. Uh, the right to not be in, uh, incriminate yourself. Uh, that's a basic uh, civil right. Uh, the right to vote. That's a right that can be taken away by simply being incarcerated, such as a felony. That's why when people go to prison, when they come back out, they have lost their right to vote. That is one of the things that Americans do for its citizens to abridge the voting process, to stop the voting process. If you break our laws and you have to commit a felony, they say in America, you don't deserve to vote. So they take away your right to vote. You got to fight to get that right back. But on the hand of a human right, you can go to prison, and while you're in prison, they 
has got to provide you with food. They got to provide you with safety. They can't have you in cramped rat-infested uh, rat holes. They have to take care of your human basic needs inside the prison. That's where human rights come in. And oh, wow. uh, definitely, yeah. Okay. Uh, that is the difference between human rights and civil rights. And in fact, uh, we have another month and the rest of February to deal with human rights versus civil rights. Um, what have you experienced? Let's talk about civil rights. What have you experienced in this country, such as a civil right, such as the right to vote, um, the right to a speedy trial, that's just a civil right, they give you that, and they don't have to. Um, say, for instance, on your job, what about some of the rights you experience on your job? Um, well, I know I used to work at a, um, a special needs school, and mm-hmm. um, I know they have a lot of uh, human rights. Um, as far as being able to be able to take uh, taken care of while they're at school to be properly educated, mm-hmm. even though um, they may uh, lack uh, certain abilities, they still mm-hmm. have the right to be yeah. educated. Yeah, handicap, mentally handicapped. Uh, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. You yeah. must make that attempt. Go ahead. Yes. Um. And just you know, no matter what their disability was, they were uh, they had the right to be uh, educated. Uh, we had some um, students that were on ventilators, some that could not move or um, you know do anything for themselves, but they still had the right to be educated. Mm-hmm. You oh, know, um, that was uh, very uh, amazing to me. You know, I I didn't know that. You know, because I came from a like a private uh, uh, like preschool to going to a, the public school, which happened to be an all inclusive uh, special needs school. So that was um, something that I did not know, and I had to learn, you know, certain things. And but it was kind of odd because they were still made to take the um, the standard test that you know that uh, other uh, students at other schools, other public schools that did not have disabilities had to take some some of the the um, testing was um, they had to be had to be uh, tested, which was um, it was odd to me because some I mean we knew that they could, some cannot answer these questions or do um, you know certain things that they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um. I had a um, a issue that come up uh, when I was a youngster, uh, such as uh, during the uh, era of uh, segregation and lynching and killing of uh, black people and black, especially black men and black boys uh, by our our white brothers and sisters. Um, When they came to my house, uh, to take me out because I was accused of running a white woman off the road. That was an issue, whereas um, uh, 
similar to what uh, the Germans were doing to the Nazis. They did anything they wanted to with uh, the human beings in their midst. That was a violation of my human rights. As far as I had been driving on the road, I had a right to drive on the road just like everybody else. But for them to come and want to harm me because I was accused of uh, running somebody off the road, not knowing what the facts are, they decided to take them into their hands to do what they wanted to with my human life. And right. the same thing with apart, same thing with apartheid in South Africa. How they treated, and, and we can direct correlate between our civil rights battle and apartheid battle in South Africa. Exactly the same separation of the races, that is a human failure of love in your heart for your fellow man, that you want to kill and maim and deny them, give them separate water fountains, give them separate but equal. It's not equal. Right. It's just a, a, a human failure, and it cuts into human rights. That's where human rights and civil rights uh, blend together. And you got to know the differences between the two in order to, to take on the battle. Uh, in the first, uh, we have we have been on now uh, uh, an hour already. we got 45, 44 minutes of live streaming time. But in, when you go back and listen to this broadcast, I went through all of the areas of concern that the National Association of Black Defenders deal with. And when you get a chance, Erica, it is some powerful information on this website. Dr. McCorvey and the team that has put all this together, this is some awesome information. This, okay. this, is, a, this is a roadmap for how an organization can help human beings, regardless of what color, do what is right by each other. I ain't talking about no Lord and over the kind of control nobody, but just human decency and respect for each other. Powerful. Um, there is a um, upload that I just did a few minutes ago, Civil Rights. It runs about 12 minutes and nine seconds. Uh, if you want to listen to it, you can. Uh, I hope you hang on with us for, if you got time, um, uh, I would really appreciate it because uh, this is one of the things that, um, that troubles me about um, our organization. Uh, I like Dr. McCorvey's drive. I don't know what he's got going on today that somebody missed this. I don't know what's taking place, but uh, I, I, don't, I just can't imagine that he um, – Got it, but something is going on that he's not present. But right, right. The, the the board members and the people on this team. Um, I feel I have more drive than they do. I feel Dr. McCorvey have more drive than they do. And from my brief conversation with you today, and and you taking on the task in which Dr. McCorvey has given you, which is to disseminate information about this organization and get board members to follow through on their commitment as board members, such as uh, human rights versus civil rights. That's Dr. Howard's responsibility. 
I know that perhaps he is going to school, perhaps he's doing whatever, but look like perhaps he could find somebody to fill in while he's not here. You see what I'm saying? To deal with the subject right. in which he is in charge of. Human rights, civil rights. Yeah. On the uh, right. on the on the National Association on the National Association of uh, as as the executive board member. That's what he's he's the deputy commissioner for human rights. And uh, perhaps he's got other irons in the fire, but I would encourage him to have somebody step in when his time comes. Right. We still got another m- month and a half to deal with human rights and civil rights. Okay, okay. I'm going to go ahead. Um, well, um, see what we can do about that, man. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and play that, and uh, it runs about okay. 12 minutes. Okay, I'm going to stop okay. it when I. Okay. You're listening to House of Grace Gospel Blog Talk Radio. We're coming to you from 231 6th Avenue. Today we're dealing with human rights versus civil rights. This is a live call-in conference call, and it's uh, anybody from anywhere in the United States, anywhere in the world that want to talk about human rights versus civil rights. Have your human rights been infringed on? Have your civil rights been infringed on? This is a place you can talk about and talk about issues to solve them. This is a, a brief uh, issue in regards to civil rights and the Civil Rights and Human Rights Center there in, in Atlanta, Georgia. Be back shortly. Welcome to the Center for Civil and Human Rights. My name is Nicole Moore, and I'm the manager of education here. At the Center for Civil and Human Rights, it's our mission to empower you to take the protection of every human's rights personally. And so we do that by telling the stories of the American Civil Rights Movement and tying it with the global human rights movement. At the center, we have three unique gallery experiences. And on our very first floor, you have Voice to the Voiceless, the Morehouse College Martin Luther King Jr. collection. In this space, it rotates every three or four months. And what you'll be able to experience are the actual papers and documents of Dr. King. So you're gonna see his books, letters, telegraphs, outlines of his speeches. And this is one of the few places in the world that you're gonna actually see his original papers. Coming up to our second floor, which is our main floor, you're gonna see Rolls Down Like Water, the American Civil Rights Movement. And this gallery brings you through in 1954, so you start to see a segregated Atlanta. And you're gonna go all the way until April of 1968 with the assassination of Dr. King in Memphis, Tennessee. When students walk into the space, what you're gonna notice immediately is that you're going to see the segregationists and you're gonna hear their voices. But we not only focus on the segregation, we also look at how African-American communities thrived in this environment. And so you're gonna see the institutions in Atlanta that made Atlanta great. You're gonna take a look at Sweet Auburn and you're gonna see the Royal Peacock. You're gonna see colleges like Morehouse and Spelman. So you're gonna see how these communities were able to stay successful when basically the odds are stacked against them. And then coming into our second portion, which is the movement catches fire. And what you're gonna see then is you're gonna meet individuals like Ruby Bridges, the six-year-old who integrated her school in Louisiana. You're gonna see Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott. One of the most emotional yet important pieces I think of the center is our sit-in counter. Visitors are invited to sit at the lunch counter and go through a simulation of what it would have been like to actually sit and hear the torments and the taunts 
and understand that nonviolence was not passive aggressive. So you get to experience just a small portion of what they would have experienced. And you get to ask yourself, could I have done it? But the one thing that really brings people together is when they come into the space that we're in right now, which is the March on Washington. And in August 1963, over 250,000 people, black, white, Latino, Asian, they all descended upon Washington, D.C. to fight for jobs and freedom. And it was the largest peaceful protest held in our country at that time. Many of you guys know the March on Washington for Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. But here you're going to learn about A. Philip Randolph and Dorothy Height and Bayard Rustin, the organizers of the events. They had a list of demands that they presented. And they had various speakers so that everybody could understand that we can have a peaceful protest. And all we want is jobs and freedom and equality in that. In Spark of Conviction, the global human rights movement, you're going to take the experiences that you learned during the American Civil Rights Movement, and you're going to understand that these issues aren't just in the United States. You're going to see protests from all over the world. So when you walk into the space, you'll see these mirrors, and they'll ask, who like you? And you'll have different adjectives that you can choose from to say who like you is threatened around the world. And what happens is once you choose an adjective, there's a person that comes and talks to you in this mirror. And based on the adjective that you chose, that's going to be your experience if you were to go to their country. And so we use that to bring the connection to you so that you understand that these issues are very real. And it's up to us to make sure that we can change how these rights are viewed. You'll also be introduced to some defenders of human rights, like Nelson Mandela, Dr. King again, and Gandhi. You're also going to see some of the offenders of human rights, like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Pol Pot, and Uganda's Idi Amin. And in this space, we want you to understand that these groups of people either helped or harmed large groups of people. And when you understand that and then see in the middle of the space, modern day human rights defenders, you'll see that human rights and activism doesn't look a certain way. And so it doesn't matter if you don't have the very best in clothing or you're not all clean cut. Are you willing to make a change? And are you willing to take a stand? Then that's what really matters. But no matter what you take away from the Center for Civil and Human Rights, we hope that you're inspired to act and that you take the protection of every human's rights personally. ...and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Thank you for listening. That's powerful information about um, the Center for Civil Rights and Human Rights. It's powerful information. Um, we have about 34 minutes left in the broadcast. From what you just heard there, do you have any comments on that? Um, any thoughts on um, the need or no need for such institutions to bring human beings to be aware of what's taking place in regards to human rights versus civil rights? I thought it was powerful. Um, yes. Um, one thing that I really believe in is uh, unity among Humans, you know, like you said, um, there shouldn't be a division, and it should be equal and fair. And mm-hmm. we're not seeing it 
but at the same time, I have uh, seen and witnessed within this year, last year, um, people that I thought that wouldn't say something, say something about uh, human rights, basic human rights, and it's time out for division. And if we continue to uh, educate our friends, our family, our coworkers on the topic, hopefully one day this will not be a big issue or an issue at all concerning mm-hmm. basic human rights and everyone having the opportunity opportunity to express these rights. Mm-hmm. So education um, is power. Education is the key for 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 um, turning the corner and uh, baiting some of the mindset. Let's look at, for instance, just like um, the issue with uh, white America in regards to uh, people of color and other minorities and black people and other people increasing in numbers now. I feel that at the heart of what's taking place in this country is that they are scared. They are afraid that their way of life is passing away, of them being absolutely being in control. When President Barack Obama was elected president of this nation, it awakened the evil of racism in this country. It shows who we really were as a nation. That was just the beginning. And what President Trump did, he bought into that hatred, evilness of a human being against another human being simply because of the color of their skin because they feel they are superior and that they are the rightful choices to have what is best in this land and that anybody else getting anything is, is taken away from them. Um, I want to go to an issue. Do you have any more thoughts on that before I go to the next issue, which is uh, uh, do inmates have a right? And if so, what are they, inmates that are in prison? Oh, no, sir. I have nothing else to say. Okay. All right. Do inmates have rights? If so, what are they? Obviously, going to jail or prison involves having one's right curtailed, but that does not mean inmates in the United States are without basic human rights simply because they are a human being. They have those basic human rights. Even the most hardened criminal has basic rights protected by the U.S. Constitution, even the person's on death row, even the person that that commits their most heinous crime, they still have basic human rights, even though they did some person inhumane by killing them, by going against one of God's personal laws, thou shalt not kill. If you are someone you know may be facing incarceration, you should know your rights. What are your friends or loved ones' rights or will be while you are behind bars? A person's rights while in prison are very slightly depending on where they are incarcerated or at what stage of the criminal process their case may be. Inmates at a pretrial stage, and so forth, those who are in jail awaiting trial, have the rights to be housed in human facilities, as we spoke of earlier. 
and cannot be punished or treated as guilty while they are awaiting trial. All other inmates generally have all the rights described below. Let's talk about cruel and unusual punishment. Every inmate has the right to be free under the Eighth Amendment from inhumane treatment or anything that could be considered cruel, excuse me, and unusual punishment. Unfortunately, the Eighth Amendment did not clearly define what cruel and unusual punishment would include, but the Supreme Court has held that such punishment would include, among others, drawing and quarantining, in other words, uh, separating them, putting them out in a, such as a, uh, you might call it stockade, uh, isolation. Uh, we used to call it, we call it at home in prison, the SEG unit. Even though you are in that SEG unit because of something that you did, you're separated from inmates, you still deserve meals and being treated human. Okay? Disavowing. Well, in other words, depriving you of using a place where you can defecate and relieve your body. In other words, you see what I'm saying? Putting you in conditions yeah. where you can't get rid of your body fluids. That's that's unhumane treatment. Beheading. Right. Public disassociation. In other words, doing stuff in public to ridicule it. You know, no, uh-uh. Burning somebody alive. That's cruel and unusual punishment. Supreme Court also left open the other punishment would not be allowed. So that today, any punishment that is considered inhumane treatment or a violation of a person's basic dignity, basic dignity, Ms. Edmund, basic dignity might be considered cruel and unusual. However, this treatment usually must be reviewed on a case-by-case basis by the court. Sexual harassment or sex crime. Inmates have a right to be free from sex crime or sexual harassment. If in the prison, if the men, you wouldn't cruel and unusual punishment to put a male in a in a, in an area where other men is going to attack them and sexually abuse them, assault them. That's against the law. You can't do that. Inmates have a right to be free from sex crime and sexual harassment. This applies to crimes of harassment from other inmates or other prison personnel. In my 29 years at Holman Prison as a correctional officer in the death row section, those things were not were dealt with. You couldn't do that to an inmate. Courts have held guards, administrations, even government officials liable for either allowing sexual harassment, crime to occur, an institutional program, or systematically inflicting such conditions on inmates. Such acts might carry both civil penalties and criminal sanctions against those who perform them. Right to complain about prison condition and access to the court. You, just like you and I, have a right to complain and have due process about situations such as voting and fair representation. A prison got the same right inside of that prison. So for how what they can complain about the condition in which they're in. Inmates have the right both to complain about prison conditions and voice their concern on both prison officials and the court. Inmates have been denied these rights, have received civil judgment against prison officials and incidents such as being placed in solitary confinement after complaining about a prison condition. That's against the law. I'm in, I'm in Section uh, D, and I write a scathing article to the governor or to the newspaper that somehow they get in and they publish, and guess what? The minute you hit the newspaper and hit the warden's desk, warden send a couple guards down there, get Freddie out and lock him up, put him in safe. 
Don't give him no water. Don't give him no food. That's against the law. You can't do that. Disabled prisoners, inmates, inmates with disabilities are entitled, just like you were talking before, people with learning disabilities, they're entitled to be taught just like the people with all the brains. They think they have all the brains, rather. Inmates with disabilities are entitled to certain reasonable accommodation under the American with Disability Act. That's the same thing that governs us, the Americans under Disability Act. Just because you are incarcerated don't mean that those rights are taken away. This ensures that disabled prisoners receive the same access to prison and facilities as those who are not disabled. However, their accommodation needs only be reasonable, not extraordinary or, or best available. Medical and mental care, you need to be cared for mentally. Given right health care. You can't let you have a sore on your leg and let it start turning to gang green. Then come about taking you to the hospital and you watch it turn into grain green for five months. You are liable for that because it's entitled to receive medical care, mental care as well. I'm getting a call here from California, 530-71-1382. You wouldn't happen to know who that is, would you? I hope they oh, uh, call it. Sure. Okay. I don't know who that is. Somebody calling from California. See, that's the thing that I'll be trying to get them. When I'm on the air, my cell phone would not allow me to break the radio connection and answer a regular personal call. That's why I give out the Block Talk Radio number for call in, which is 347-202-0317. And I guarantee you that's somebody trying to get on the show by calling me. Yep. That's why I put that information out. But anyway, I will find out later who it is because I'll go back after the broadcast and find out who it is. We've got 23 minutes of, uh, of uh, time left. But uh, First Amendment rights, inmates are basic First Amendment rights, free speech and religion. If they want to worship the devil inside prison, some prison, you can end up going to court for not letting them worship the devil. That's their right to worship the devil if they want to. Same way outside. We outside. If we want to worship the devil and not worship God, that's your right to do that. Only to the extent that which exercise of those rights do not interfere with the status as inmates. If the prisoner attempts to exercise First Amendment rights that interfere with the legitimate objection of the correctional officials, like order, discipline, security, they will generally be curtailed. And they would, I want to, I have, I want to, even though when it's locked down, I want to be playing my music loud as I want to. I ain't gonna let you do that. <laughs> you, you gonna have right. to shut that radio off. You see what I'm saying? Right. That's just like on the outside. I may live in my neighborhood and have the highest fence that I want to. But do you think, how long do you think I'm going to be able to blast my music all night in the neighborhood? Somebody calling the cops, ain't they? Mr. Howard, they're playing that music louder. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? It's the same thing. Okay, let's talk about discrimination. Just as discrimination, uh, just as on the outside, inmates have the right to be free from discrimination while in prison, Guess who on the outside have the right to be free from you and I? This includes racial segregation, disparity treatment based on ethnic or religion or preference based on our age. Since the, since we all young fellows, we can do this. Since you over seventy, Mister Howard, you don't get out of You don't have to. We ain't gonna let you do this. That's discrimination. What right inmates do not have? And here's the kicker: 
inmates generally lose their rights to privacy in prison. It's too many in there. You can't have your privacy except if you wanted to have privacy, you should have stayed out of prison. They are not protected by warrantless searches. In, that, in other words, I can walk in that down that hall, uh, Erica, and I can search any inmate I want to any hour of the day, 24 hours a day. All I walk in there is to turn them lights on, and I said, bed 63, get up. Inmate James Brown, bed 63, get up. Stand in attention, and I can go through everything he got. And guess what gives me that right? I may have heard he had a knife. I may have heard that he makes knives. I may have had he have a bottle of wine. I may have it in that he stole all the, half of the food out of the kitchen and sold it down the hall. So I have a right to search it. While inmates do retain their due process right and are free from intentional deprivation of their property or prison articles, this does not include any form of contraband. Knife in the prison is considered sort of contraband. That's contraband. Uh, in fact, if you have over 25 packets of crackers, <laughs> you may be selling crackers. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. At a certain point, that becomes contraband. Wow. Guess what? You could be you could be making money out of stolen hamburgers out of the kitchen. You got 50 stolen mm-hmm. hamburgers in, in in your box. What you 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 gonna, you're not gonna eat 50 hamburgers? This is contraband. All right. Some of even in part of work release program or other employment, like uh, initiative inmates are generally to employment laws and minimum wage requirements, just like we are. If you have any questions about what rights an inmate has or will have under special circumstances, you should contact your local attorney familiar with criminal law. You can find a list of attorneys in your area or law firms. This is all kind of this is good information here. Let's talk about a little bit of prison rights. What do you think as a prisoner? You, you've seen and heard them, all the things that go on in prison and some of the things that don't go on in prison. People talk about prison. What, what, from the brief conversation that I just, information I just gave out, what's your thought? Um, let's see. I think... I, I often think about when it comes to prison um, is the people that are in jail that are um, innocent. And it's sad because they still have to to uh, endure the scrutiny of uh, being in jail even though they are innocent. And, um, you know, to have those rights taken away knowing that you're innocent, that it's like disturbing to me, mm-hmm. but at the same time, there's no way for um, for them to, uh, you know, plead their case or or even for someone to even believe them when it comes to, you know, imprisonment. So the same thing that they that uh, the guilty, the innocent have to endure, even though that they even though they are innocent. Um, now, I do understand, um, you know, because, like you said, it is uh, crowded, overcrowded, that, that the right to privacy has been taken away from them. And their time and their life is not their own while they're in prison. 
because they can be awakened at any time of the hour and may need to send an attention like you said. So um, to me, I mean, it's not right and no, you know, because even though a person has done something wrong, they still should be able to be treated like a human. Mm-hmm. And doing things like, you know, waking them up out of the middle of the night or going, waking, you know, uh, you know, going through their things and different things like that um, without just call is and also an invasion of privacy that, that's taken away from them. So, you know, it's kind of like a, like that borderline, you know, kind of like straddling the fence type thing um, when it comes to some of the things that go on in prison. You know, I've never been... Um, I've never really asked anybody, um, you know, well, I've heard someone has told me a couple of things, like when they're in prison, um, you have to be careful because um, people are trying to gang up on you or or jump on you and um, different things like that, and um, you have to find ways to protect yourself, and that's scary. That's like, so, I mean, I was like, wow, like, really? It was like, yeah, it's like, you know, um, so... You know, it seems like some people may have uh, ways of getting things that they shouldn't have um, to protect themselves, uh, you know, so that's, uh, I guess, not right either. But um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just it's a lot when you think about it. And... Um, mm-hmm. You just have to be mindful of things like that, you know, that when people uh, go in jail, like you said, they, you should be able to contact someone and make sure that you know your individual family member's rights while they're in jail and allow your, uh, make sure that your family member knows their rights while they're in jail. Mm-hmm. To, you know, to educate them so that they won't be taken advantage of or, you know, mistreated. We have another caller that does come on the line. Um, you're in the studio with House uh, of Gospel Blog Talk Radio. We're talking human rights versus civil rights. This is a live call-in conference with information and discerning facts concerning human rights versus civil rights. Would you like to speak well, on the broadcast? This the United States, United States Supreme Law of the U.S. Constitution, not a human rights declaration. That comes out the UN. Civil rights are rights that's between individuals, not individuals and government. But as far as criminals concerned, what about the victim? What is the consideration for them? Well, yeah. Uh, so if a person go out and commit a crime against a victim, well, first you've committed a crime against the state in which you're in. That's why I come a victim. Can I tell you why well, I forgive him? Don't put him in jail. You know, you committed a crime against that state. But all these, all these sad things was not extended to the victim that the criminal committed a crime against to whatever degree, murder, stealing, or whatever. I think the victim should practice filing civil charges against these perpetrators in order to recoup restitution, the same thing that happened to O.J. Simpson. In that case, 
they may win the lotto, bingo, or get reparations, then they still will be liable for paying for the harm and the economic impact that they cause. Anyway, that's my consideration. Thank you very much. Yeah, um, you you bring up a lot of valid points. Victim rights. Yes. There are when the first place, in the first stage, when a person commits a crime, like we were talking about before, Erica, you have violated the rights of that that, that state, that country, that just human decency. That shall not kill. If you rob somebody, that shall not steal. You violate somebody's rights in doing that. And, and and therefore, when you go to prison, just because you did those things, you still are to be treated as a human, but you didn't treat somebody else as a human when you did those things to him. That's just the fallacy of human evil and what we do to each other as human beings. It's human. It's a sin. It's a failure. It's a shortcoming. And and the, and the brother that just left, that was him calling earlier to the cell phone number, I believe. But it, it still does not excuse you to treat John Black any different than John Charlie because of what type of crime they committed. Granted, the crime was heinous. Now, Seeking civil retribution for what somebody do, that is an avenue that crime victims' family have. If you get uh, mugged and and somebody calls you to be what? Handicapped. You have recourse for civil action, civil address against them. Even though they go to prison in due time, guess what? You still have a right to address what they did to you through a civil action. But guess what? You as a private citizen can't go get your guns and your brothers and go shoot up his house and kill his folks. Guess what? You go into prison too. The one who shot up your family. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a a very delicate balance between the perfections of love and caring for each other and treat others just like you want to be treated. Exactly. There are some people there are some people with narcissistic mindset have absolutely no feelings for nobody else. It's all about what I I I I I I want. And we have just experienced that in this country on a national level. It is inconceivable that I, as a person, could have somebody work with me for five or six or seven years, and that person get in danger, I don't lift a finger. Ooh, that's the uh, uh, ooh, that's the epitome of what being cold and indifferent to somebody else's feelings. Say, for instance, like your mother, let's get real close to you. Your mother that treated you and raised you and brought you into the world and diapered you and changed you and fed you and just took care of you all the way up until you got ready to do what you supposed to do as a grown man. And all of a sudden, 
You start treating her like a dog. Where did that come from? But there are human beings that are just like that. I appreciate that call. I was hoping he would stay on and engage with us a little bit. But he, he had a powerful point. What do you think of his points and what he was bringing about? Um, it goes back to the basic regard for human life for me. Um, just the victim rights are definitely violated when it comes to uh, crimes being uh, done against them. And, um, you know, to hurt another individual, I heard someone say one time, um, to hurt uh, another individual calls for some type of mental imbalance, you know, because your human, your, when it's in your human, um, I can't think of the name. Not persona, but, yeah, yeah, your human entity will not allow you to just hurt somebody, you know, because, you know how it feels to be hurt, but when you mm-hmm. go past that and you can't, um, and you, and it's something else, it's another maybe mental imbalance that causes you that will allow you to hurt someone else because you know how they have like temporary insanity or someone blacked out, you know, it has to be something in you that is not, you know, balanced for you to hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. And when you cross that line to hurt another individual, then there are, um, you know, laws that come to protect that victim, but they can never erase what the victim has um, endured mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. from the crime that has been committed against them. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing that uh, bothers me about the issues that we are talking about. There are some people believe that I don't care what we say or how we go at it, that we are somehow biased against the person that had the crime committed to. I don't know if that caller had that feeling, but I sense he was really in tune to the victim. You see what I'm saying? That's good. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely good. That's, that's There's nothing wrong with that. But another aspect of that is that um, if you can't feel empathy for another person, you got a serious mental flaw. Empathy is a powerful thing. And to feel for another human being, what did engine say? Walk a mile in my shoes? Yeah. You, you have to have there that comes a point when uh, you can be too naive. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, just just like Harriet Tubman when she was running the Underground Railroad. Some slaves were in such a condition in how they were, they didn't realize they were slaves. They would do anything in the world for the master. And I don't say that in a condescending manner because their mind had been absolutely taken over by the master will take care of me, even though the master is cutting off my foot so I can't run. I still love the master. You see what I'm getting at? At some point, 
your personal survival as an individual has to take over. That the master don't love you as much as you think you love him. The master will hang you and out and and and, and behead you and stick your your head on a stake for other inmates, other uh, slaves seeking to run just before they get to the swamp. You 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 better think twice. See what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm gonna tell you. I have. Uh, we got five minutes and fourteen seconds left of live streaming time left. I'm gonna tell you something. I like your attitude, and I like the fact that you're on this team with me and McCorvey. I I'm telling you straight up. Um, I sense it in your um, voice, how you speak, what you do. You're serious about what you do. I appreciate that. I appreciate you joining this broadcast. Thank you. Thank uh, you for your kind words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we got. Uh, we're gonna go into. Um, we got four more minutes of uh, live streaming time. Talk to uh, just for a minute, even though we talk about civil rights versus human rights. Talk to the other board members and other members of this organization in this brief four minutes about your responsibilities and what you do in regards to making all of us aware of what our responsibility are to the organization, what we're supposed to do. Talk a little bit about that. Um, I know you take orders. Uh, I don't mean that in orders. I'm saying take directions from uh, uh, Dr. McCorver as well as from me. But talk about that briefly so that they can hear this uh, later on. Go ahead. Yes, yes, sir. Well, um, Dr. McCorvey and Mr. Freddie brought me on as a um, administrative assistant, assistant, and my job is just to make everything flow easy for us, everybody on the board, you know, make sure the communication is there, make sure that everything is um, on time, you know, we're meeting the deadlines, not only we're meeting the deadlines, but we're ahead of the deadline. You know, we want to get everything decent and in order so that when any when we're called upon to do anything, it is done with the spirit of excellency. You know, we have to be in order. We have is a powerful organization, and we need to get the name out there more. We need to um, be uh, unified as a group and everybody you know, know their part, and I know everyone's part. You know, I'm still learning. I just uh, came on, but I am willing and able to work with each and every one, you know, that needs me and needs my assistance. You know, um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to work. This is a great organization, and I'm very honored that you all have embraced me. Um, I cannot wait to speak to the rest of the team members, the the board members, Um Hopefully um, that'll be soon. I just um, want to make sure that um, I'm there to assist you all and whatever you need, and so we can get the organization flowing on in harmony, you know, and with the spirit of excellency. I really um, did not know 
a lot about it beforehand, but once I got into it, I, you know, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is an amazing organization. It's so powerful. Each individual plays a important part. As I went back and read, you know, the bios and uh, about each uh, member, I was like, oh, wow, I can't wait to, uh, you know, speak to him or speak to her. Um, I was just amazed, you know, I, I love to be educated. I love insight. So I'm like, I'm doing it at you all feet right now because I want the the knowledge that you all have, you know, I'm only 39, but I have a, a they call me, they tell me I have an old soul. So I love to, to learn and new things and to be educated on things that I don't know, you know, um, my main goal is to help, to assist. That's what I love doing, and that's what I'm going to do my best at just making sure that we are put together the way that we're supposed to be, you know, and uh, provide my assistance in any way I can. I uh, sense that um, you, you like me, I like being around old folks, not from just to look in their mouths and hear what they got to say, but to learn from what they got to say. Yes. They've been down the road that I got to go down. Exactly. They have wisdom. They have wisdom to impart for my guidance. And if I fail to listen, right. yes. nobody's fault but mine. We got uh, 15 seconds. I want to take this time to thank all of you for joining the National Association of Black Defenders in Washington, D.C., for this two-hour broadcast, we still have one more hour left of broadcast in recorded time. So, uh, Ms. Eric, if you want to stay around, you can. What I'm going to do now is play a different uh, several clips. I got one race and public policing, part two. I got one race and public policing, education, housing, banking, and beyond. I have another one, racism or racism hurts businesses in black communities and sexism and how it will affect uh, uh, the possibilities or this prospect of a woman becoming president of the United States. These are all powerful subjects in regards to human rights versus civil rights. And we're going to play uh, this one here, Race and Public Policies Part 2, and then we will this runs about nine minutes. Now, Miss Erica, you can stay as long as you want because uh, you still, whatever you say, still be recorded and still part of a three-hour broadcast, uh, but you can leave anytime you want to. But I'm going to tell you, as a member of this organization, ma'am, I thank you. God bless you. With that, thank you. let's go to race and public police. Race in American public policy, from banking to housing to education and all aspects of life in America. Race and public policy. We typically attribute the decline of black communities, and you hear this from um, the Trump administration to uh, a number of uh, elected officials that the black communities are the cause are caused by black people. But in reality, um, the money used to, that people used to uplift themselves are taken from them because of racism. In my research, um, we looked at home prices in 
communities where the share of the black population was 50% or greater versus those where the share of the black population was 1% or less. And we controlled for all those things people say that reduce housing prices, crime, education, um, structural characteristics, neighborhood amenities, walkability, and all those fancy Zillow um, metrics that we talk about. And what we found is astounding that after controlling for all those variables, homes in black neighborhoods are priced roughly at 23% less nationally than homes in white neighborhoods. And it's about 48000 per home. Accumulatively, that's about $156 billion of lost assets. It would have funded 8.8 .8 million four-year degrees, would have replaced the pipes in Flint nearly 3,000 times, nearly double the cost of the opioid crisis. These price differences would have never occurred if um, there wasn't segregation, if there wasn't legal housing discrimination, if there wasn't redlining. These were baked into law, largely because of racist rhetoric and beliefs about black people. How we value black things is really a reflection how we value black people. We devalue um, school boards. We devalue leadership in municipalities. We devalue homes. And, and that's what the nature of my research is. It's, it's expressing that there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. That if we really want to address inequalities, we should not um, attack people. We should address the real um, devaluation of people through policy. Much of my research focuses on health insurance coverage, who has coverage, how it's changed over time, and how to continue to make progress. And rates of uninsurance vary significantly by race. Prior to implementation of the Affordable Care Act, nearly one in three Hispanic people and nearly one in five black people were uninsured, compared to about one in eight whites. But the ACA has helped to close this racial gap. Since the ACA's core coverage provisions came online in 2014, Rates of uninsurance across all racial groups have fallen dramatically, with the biggest gains among Black and Hispanic people. At the same time, there is still significant work to do. Today, 30 million people still remain uninsured, and about half of them are people of color. One of the specific reasons that people of color are disproportionately likely to be uninsured today has to do with the fact that 14 states have refused to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. More than 90% of the people who were locked out of coverage because of their state's refusal to expand Medicaid live in the South. And indeed, some of the states with the biggest black populations are those that have not expanded Medicaid under the ACA. So bringing Medicaid expansion to the remaining states and taking other steps that continue to move towards universal coverage will reduce racial disparities. But of course, just as there are racial disparities in access to health insurance, there are also racial disparities in health outcomes. And some of the most shocking statistics have to do with infant and maternal mortality. In the U.S., white babies die before their first birthday at a rate of 4.9 per 1,000. White women die from pregnancy and childbirth-related causes at a rate of 13 per 100,000. Those numbers are shocking and scary, and they are far higher than other rich countries. But for black babies and black moms, the picture is far worse. Black babies die at a rate of 11.4 per 1,000, more than 1%. Black moms die at a rate of 42.8 per 100,000. Those numbers are more than double and more than triple the rate of whites, respectively. 
and no one really knows why. Try to imagine what would happen if white moms and white babies were dying at the rate of black moms and black babies. What conversations would policymakers be having? What scientific research would we be funding? How would doctors be treating their patients differently? All of us, policymakers, scientists, physicians, should be asking ourselves what more we can do to give this issue the attention it deserves. I have found, and found well before Trump's election, well before we even knew about the so-called deaths of despair, premature mortality among um, middle-aged, less-than-college-educated whites, was a big gap in terms of uh, optimism among poor minorities, poor blacks in particular, and poor whites. So at the time, I decided to look at differences across poor blacks, poor whites, and poor Hispanics. This was a time that there was a lot of violence um, in the African-American community, the Ferguson riots, the Baltimore riots, a lot of concern about the state of um, African-Americans in this country. And what I found in my data was that poor blacks were three times as likely to be higher up on an optimism scale than poor whites. And at the time, that finding really surprised me. Poor Hispanics were about one and a half times as likely as poor whites to be optimistic, but nothing like the gap between poor whites and poor blacks. Poor blacks are also half as likely to report stress the previous day as poor whites, and we know objectively that they don't experience less stress. They're more resilient to it. What we're finding in the U.S. now is that minorities, although traditionally discriminated against, starting from a lower level of life expectancy and higher levels of mortality, have continued to make gradual progress and narrowing the gap with whites. They've also done this on the education front, and so you see what were previously bigger differences in levels narrowing substantially. Our mortality rate is going up rather than down. We're the only rich country in the world where this is happening. Due to what we've called deaths of despair, Anne Case and Angus Deaton came out with a study later in 2016 that showed that there was a huge increase in premature deaths among less than college educated, middle-aged whites. This, these deaths, you do, you do not see blacks or Hispanics in this category of death at all. We're seeing today a, a terrible um, convergence of events lack of hope, loss of aversion, loss of identity, loss of purpose, loss of jobs among low-skilled workers, and particularly poor white low-skilled workers do not have another narrative. We've seen, in contrast, poor minorities have, been, have dealt with a history of discrimination, coping, have higher levels of resilience, seem to have better community ties and formal ties and ways of coming together as communities, and even in the face of tragic and horrific events, ranging from kids in cages to mass shootings like the El Paso shooting, you see these communities, the latter set of communities, coming together and trying to push forward with a positive agenda versus a complete um, sort of desperation and hate driven in part by our civic discourse, by our president, by the meat certain parts of the media. Historically, over time, we've seen that people who are losing, who, who fear being taken over by others, even if it's not the reality, do desperate and terrible things. 
we need to take this as a historical moment that we really need to come together and show that America isn't what is going on in the mainstream stories and in horrible shootings or the language that our president uses. and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. My guest today is Andre Perry, a fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program here at Brookings. He is the co-author of a new report that shows that highly rated businesses in black majority neighborhoods experience annual losses in business revenue of up to nearly $4 billion when compared to highly rated businesses in other neighborhoods. And he's here in the Brookings Podcast Network studio to tell us more about the report's findings. The report is titled Five Star Reviews, One Star Profits, The Devaluation of Businesses in Black Communities. His co-authors are David Harshbarger, who is a research analyst at Brookings, and Gallup Principal Economist Jonathan Rothwell. Also on this episode, Senior Fellow Elaine Kmark answers a student's question about the role of sexism in America's politics and whether we'll ever have a woman president. This is part of our ongoing Policy 2020 Ask an Expert feature. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get information about and links to all of our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our events podcast. And now, the interview. Andre, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Happy to be here. I'm glad to be here. All right. So we're here to talk about a new report that you co-authored with Jonathan Rothwell and David Harshbarger. It's called Five Star Reviews, One Star Profits the devaluation of businesses in black communities. Can you give us sort of the top line findings from this research? Yeah, we know that racism impacts the productivity and profits and revenues of individuals and communities. The top line finding of this report is that businesses in black neighborhoods are losing between $1 billion and $4 billion in profits simply because of location and simply because they're in a black-majority neighborhood. And that's whether or not they're a black-owned business or just in the black-majority neighborhood? Yes, just being in a black-majority neighborhood, it has an impact on the revenues gain. This is pretty intense and fascinating research. So before we get into the actual findings, the implications, the policy solutions, let me talk about the methodology. I think it's really interesting how you and your co-authors approach the research question, gather data, analyze the data. Talk about what that methodology is. How'd you get the data? How'd you use it? Yeah, there's this narrative in the black community that the quality and conditions of the neighborhood are a result of the individual choices of people in the neighborhood. And in the business community, that looks like people believing that business owners aren't of the same quality or their practices are not as good as those businesses in white communities. So we looked at consumer ratings, and more specifically Yelp data. So we acquired Yelp data, and then we also acquired data to look at revenue growth. So we looked at the differences in revenue between businesses in black neighborhoods and in white neighborhoods, looking at the quality of those businesses. So how do you get Yelp data? I mean, any of us can go to our Yelp app and we can see one-star, four-star reviews, whatever, and all the comments, but how do you get Yelp data? Mainly the data scientists from Gallup essentially scraped the data. So we got those data that way, and then we purchased Duns and Bradstreet data to get a sense of revenue and the race of the business owner. Okay, and obviously there's other data sets from which you can tell 
which neighborhoods are majority black and which ones are not, right? That's exactly right. Okay. That's kind of bread and butter for the Metropolitan Policy Program. That's right. We live and die on census data. Okay. No question. So Yelp data, I think most of us, I certainly do, associate Yelp with restaurant reviews, yeah. coffee shops, that kind of thing. So what kinds of businesses are in your data set? Are they mostly restaurants or are they other kinds of businesses? Yeah, restaurants, retail, businesses in the service industry. So consumer-facing businesses, the kinds of things that you would actually use Yelp for. You have some interesting findings about business revenue growth and their connection to Yelp ratings based on the number of stars, based on the number of reviews. Can you go through some of those findings? In essence, that businesses with higher consumer ratings on Yelp or a larger number of reviews experience faster revenue growth. And so an increase in revenue growth of 1% to 2% points over a three-year period leads to much higher revenue over time. And so the more Yelp reviews you get, the better Yelp reviews you have, the more revenues you gain. Now, you draw some really interesting comparisons between businesses in majority white areas and majority black areas based on these Yelp data and quality differences, where the quality doesn't seem to matter as much in the white areas but it does in the black areas, or am I getting that kind of mixed up? Well, what we found, and this is what a lot of people may find surprising, when looking at Yelp reviews, the businesses in black communities, particularly those owned by people of color, they actually rate higher on Yelp. So that narrative that business owners aren't of quality, we have to take that off the table. They are just as good, if not better, in the aggregate, but when you look at businesses by their sector, there's no difference between businesses in white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods. But we should take quality off the table. But those businesses in black neighborhoods experience lower growth as well as fewer Yelp reviews. Even if they get, say, four or five star on average ratings, they experience slower growth. That's exactly right. And what are some of the explanations for that? Well, we were careful to control for many other factors. And the reason why we look at neighborhoods in places where the share of the black population is greater than 50% is to really get at the perception of race. And so clearly from our study that the perception of the neighborhood has a lot to do with whether or not customers from our study that the perception of the neighborhood has a lot to do with whether or not customers go to those highly rated businesses. So it's a finding that says people are choosing just to not go into majority black neighborhoods because of racist ideas, no matter what the quality of the businesses in that neighborhood may be. More or less, yes, that the percent black of a neighborhood seemingly detracts folks from going there. So you can have a hamburger shop, on one side of the railroad tracks and a hamburger shop on the other, and folks are choosing to go to the white hamburger shop and avoiding the quality that's in the black neighborhood. I'll also mention that you note the underrepresentation of black business owners as compared to the percentage of black Americans in the overall population. Can you discuss that finding? Black folks represent about 13% of the population but only 4% of business owners of the nation's 20 million business owners. And so that's staggering. And we also know 
that it has nothing to do with folks not meeting a profile type. Gallup psychologists created a builder profile so they could essentially see what kind of people live in specific neighborhoods. And those profiles that predict for business owner, there's no difference between those in white neighborhoods and those in black neighborhoods or Latino neighborhoods. And so we know that there are potential business owners everywhere, but they don't have the capital. They're not being financed. They're not receiving the loans. They're not being invested in in general. And so you see fewer black business owners. So that just goes back to all the other questions about racism in accumulating capital and accumulating wealth that disproportionately and negatively impact the black community versus other communities. I talk about devaluation and housing and businesses, but it's a mindset. Folks do not hold black people and black communities in high regard, and it's impacting our ability to get investment, to start businesses, to own a home, to walk safely in the streets. This devaluation is impacting all aspects of our lives. Well, I think that's a great segue to your new book that's about to come out from the Brookings Press, Know Your Price. Can you tell listeners about the book? You just posted some photos of receiving the galley copies today. Yeah, I'm excited. My book, Know Your Price, comes out May 19th. You can pre-order it now, but it is part memoir. It's data-rich. It's an examination or tour of six black majority cities, and I examine different assets in each of those places. So sometimes I talk about education, sometimes I talk about housing, I talk about economic development, health, and other issues, voting, for instance, but all of which I just want to make the statement, and this is what the research shows, is that the assets in black majority cities are a quality. They're not broken. I say this all the time. There's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve, that this narrative that black people are broken and they need fixing is false. The data bears that. And so the problem is when we see black people's deficits, we never invest in them. And so I wanted to highlight the assets in black majority cities so we can then invest and benefit from the quality in those places. Now, I will tell listeners, and you already know this, but you will be back on this podcast in May or so to discuss your book in some more detail. But I do want to ask you now, can you tell our listeners what the title means, Know Your Price? Yeah, my favorite play in the whole wide world is Two Trains Running by August Wilson. In the play, the main character, Memphis, is about to have his property seized through eminent domain by the city of Pittsburgh, where I'm from. The city offers... Memphis, $15,000. The main character, Memphis, says, no, I'm not selling my property for $15,000. I know my price. I'm paraphrasing. And it's a refrain throughout the play. I know my price. I got my price. There's another character, Hambone, who paints a fence for a proprietor for a ham. He paints a fence. He never gets his ham. Throughout the play, there's a refrain, give me my ham, give me my ham. And it's not known if he had mental illness before he painted the fence, but he eventually goes crazy and dies. But there's actually a happy ending to the story. The main character, Memphis, gets $35,000, and it's assumed he's getting market rate. But the moral of the story is, one, you got to know you have worth. 
You got to know your worth. But I hope this book gives people a sense of the price they need to stand on. You got to stand. Folks in power have no incentive to change. A lot of my research certainly makes a head case for diversity and inclusion, but things aren't going to change because we put a bunch of fancy charts, which are in the book, and show people a lot of data, which is in the book. But I want people to take the book to understand that they have to stand on a price in order to excite the change they want to see, even if it risks going crazy and dying. We have to move. We have to mobilize. And we have to get the kind of policies that will bring value to the devalue assets in black majority cities. Well, I look forward to having you back on the podcast to talk about your book, Know Your Price, when it comes out. Let's finish this conversation with a return to focus on your new research on the devaluation of black-owned businesses. And I'll just ask you, Andre, what kinds of policy solutions are you and your co-authors thinking about? Yeah, we want to take quality off the table because what we found is these businesses are not needing a capacity building in a sense of they need technical assistance in order to improve. The quality is there. But the neighborhoods they're in do deserve investment. In a related report on housing devaluation, we showed how devalued housing reduces municipalities' ability to fix roads, to build better schools, to improve infrastructure. And that certainly impacts a business owner's ability to attract customers. So we're recommending, hey, let's invest in the areas around the businesses. There's a story in the book, a vignette of the book of a business owner who talks about his business. It's a 4.5 star rated business on Yelp. It's been in existence for 10 years in the Hill District. It's Grandma B's. That's the name of the restaurant. Again, it's in Pittsburgh where I'm from. And 10 years ago, it was 99% black, according to census data. Today, it's about 80% black, so rapidly gentrifying. And along that period, they're starting to fix the streets now. They're starting to put garbage cans outside. They're fixing the lights. White folk moving in shouldn't necessitate those changes. It was a quality business before. It deserves all the neighborhood improvements as any other business, quality business. So my goal is to say, hey, let's first of all invest in businesses that are quality with our spending power, but also in terms of receiving loans and private investment. But also just remember to fix up the neighborhoods around the business to help drive customers to quality services. Well, Andre, I want to thank you very much for coming over here today and taking some time to talk about your new research and your new book. Hey, thanks for having me. You can find the research on the devaluation of businesses in black communities by Andre Perry, Jonathan Rothwell, and David Harshbarger on our website, brookings.edu, and pre-order Know Your Price. It comes out on May 19th. National Association of Black Defenders, a public service announcement. Racial Profiling and Racial Injustice. You are calling the National Office of the National Association of Black Defenders in Washington, D.C. If you feel that you have been racially profiled against and that you have been served with inequality in any way, 
we want you to please pick up the phone and call today, 202-852-4816. Everywhere of Black History, Law Enforcement. District Attorney Michael Jackson. I really enjoy my job at District Attorney. It gives me a chance to bring help bring comfort and relief to families who've been victimized by crime. I don't want to say closure because if they had a family member to get killed, you really can't uh, bring closure. But you can't bring comfort. This is a job I get a chance to meet new people all the time. They come to my office. I spend my, a lot of my day talking to people. Oftentimes, it's not just about crime. It's about other things, and I'm able to direct them to other agencies. Another part of my job I really enjoy is being uh, students and teachers, the educational part. I ask students a lot of times, you know, what kind of grades they're making, what are they doing with their life. But sometimes parents bring kids, uh, bring their kids to me for reason that something bad has happened at school, like bullying or hazing. And we try to formulate a strategy, get together on what we can do about tackling that problem. We get with juvenile probation or the uh, school administrators and try to formulate a plan to help stamp that out. Another very important part of my job is what the good book talks about, justice and mercy. Get a chance to meet a lot of pastors and all, and we've had this discussion. I try to bring justice to the family members who've been victimized, but sometimes you run into defendants who've changed their lives or who committed a nonviolent offense, and it's going to affect the rest of their life, so you try to bring mercy in that situation. So it's a balance. You want to do both justice and mercy, depending on the person. The formal mourning has begun for the Minneapolis man whose death last week touched off a torrent of national outrage. At the same time, President Trump is facing a torrent of criticism over his talk of using the military to quell violence. John Yang begins our coverage. In Minneapolis today, the first of several memorial services across the country for George Floyd. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry knelt at Floyd's coffin. The Reverend Al Sharpton delivered the eulogy. George Floyd's story has been the story of black folks. Because ever since 401 years ago, the reason we could never be who we wanted and dreamed to be in is you kept your knee on our neck. And across the country, a virtual moment of silence for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. The amount of time former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was seen pinning his knee onto Floyd's neck. Chauvin has been charged with second-degree murder. In Washington, Attorney General William Barr and FBI Director Christopher Wray announced new actions to address the unrest that has gripped the nation for 10 days. We've directed our 200 joint terrorism task forces around the country to assist law enforcement with apprehending and charging violent agitators. Barr blamed extremist groups. We have evidence that Antifa and other similar extremist groups, as well as actors of a variety of different political uh, persuasions, 
have been involved in instigating and participating in the violent activity. But last night, protests remained largely peaceful. In Washington, hundreds marched to the Capitol past National Guard troops. At one point, some demonstrators knelt and sang. We all need somebody. In New York City, protesters were largely peaceful as well. But as nighttime fell on the rainy city streets, police in riot gear moved in to enforce a curfew, sometimes by force. Dozens were arrested. Amid the chaos, a confrontation in Brooklyn left three policemen wounded, one stabbed and two shot, and their suspected attacker shot. The officers are expected to recover. The suspect is in critical condition. In Minnesota, Governor Tim Waltz ordered the National Guard to the state's western border, saying that violence from planned protests in North Dakota could spill into his state. Leaders in 32 states and the District of Columbia have deployed more than 3,200 members of the National Guard. President Trump is prepared to use active-duty troops if necessary, according to Deputy White House Press Secretary Hogan Gidley, who used language usually reserved to describe potential overseas military operations. Safety and security are the number one thing Donald Trump cares about, period. All options are on the table when the lives of the American people are at stake. The idea drew new pushback last night, this time from President Trump's former defense secretary, James Mattis. In his essay for The Atlantic, the retired Marine general delivered perhaps his harshest public criticism of the president yet, accusing Mr. Trump of dividing the country. And he called the use of National Guard troops near the White House on Monday to forcefully clear crowds for a presidential photo op and abuse of executive authority. The president fired back with a tweet calling Mattis the world's most overrated general. And President Trump's support among congressional Republicans showed signs of strain, as Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska said Mattis's remarks were necessary and overdue and suggested she may not vote to reelect the president. I am struggling with it. I have struggled with it for a long time. I think you know that. I didn't, uh, I didn't support the president um, uh, in, in the initial election. Meanwhile, there's new attention on police treatment of minorities across the country. The fatal shooting of an unarmed Latino man early Wednesday morning by Viejo, California police, responding to a report that a drugstore was being looted. And a video of a Sarasota, Florida police officer pressing his knee into the neck of a handcuffed black man being arrested in May on domestic violence charges. That incident is now under investigation. In Georgia today, a video court hearing for two men charged in the February killing of Ahmad Arbery. A state investigator testified one of the accused men used a racial slur. After the shooting took place, before police arrival, while Mr. Arbery was on the ground, that he heard Travis Michael make the statement. Tonight, demonstrators are gathering across the country for another round of protests. And mayors of cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. have lifted nighttime curfews, hoping last night's calm holds. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm John Yang. As John reported, yesterday's protests in New York were largely peaceful, but did include some skirmishes between protesters and police. The NewsHour's Dan Bush has been on the ground following the protests, and he joins us now from Brooklyn. 
So, Dan, hello. Uh, we have been reporting on uh, police actions across the country. In some cases, uh, there's been uh, there have been there's been violent uh, action taken uh, uh, by police. Tell us what you're seeing in New York City. That's right, Judy. I'm here right now in the Bay Ridge section of Brooklyn, where we've seen protest activity for several days. More is expected later today in the area. You can see police behind me gathering, as well as protesters in the park. This is the scene during the day, Judy. At night, it's a different story. I was covering a protest last night uh, around Trump Tower in Midtown Manhattan. The police allowed protesters to continue marching after the 8 p.m. curfew. At 9 o'clock, however, there was a very swift and sudden change. Uh, police in riot gear rushed the crowd, and they began arresting people at random, seemingly grabbing them out of the ground, police officers tackling them to the ground. Uh, and that is sort of what we're seeing at night after people are out after the curfew. Dan, we know uh, in New York City there have been questions for a long time over the years about police, about uh, possible uh, overuse of force, if you will. What are you hearing from the protesters about what they're seeing? So the protesters here in the nation's largest city, just like in other cities around the country, are out expressing their anger, uh, their frustration, their pain at the way that they're treated by police. And let's take a, a listen here at uh, one, one, one woman's comments about why she's out protesting. I want to see change. I want to see, like, you know, I, I can't go outside at night with a hoodie on and not be profiled in the South Bronx and get, you know, uh, uh, ran up on by six detective cops because they want to just search me to think, or, you know, they think I'm someone, you know, a suspect for something. It's like you have a daily fear of your life for no reason. That was a young man there, Judy, talking about his fear, his frustrations with the police. And that's what protesters are telling me here. They want concrete change. And just quickly, Dan, what about political leaders? What are they saying about New York? That's right, Judy. President Trump has criticized Governor Cuomo, Mayor de Blasio, for not cracking down harder. Uh, Governor Cuomo also criticized de Blasio. The mayor, however, has said he does not want the National Guard here. This city has the largest police force in the country with 36,000 officers. The mayor is saying he thinks he can get this under control, these nighttime protests, he says, in the coming days. So we'll see what happens. Dan Bush reporting uh, for us tonight from Brooklyn. Thank you, Dan. The nation's capital has been another site of large-scale protests. Washington, D.C.'s mayor, Muriel Bowser, said today that she wants out-of-state National Guard troops out of the District of Columbia. And the mayor joins us now. Mayor Bowser, thank you very much uh, for being here. Uh, we are, it's reported that people, uh, protesters, are gathering in the streets of Washington at this hour. This would be the seventh straight day of protests. Uh, you have opted not to call, uh, uh, impose a curfew, though. Why not? Uh, Judy, we are, we situationally, um, review what our public safety needs are to, to manage protests. 
uh, and we have seen over the last uh, two nights very peaceful protests. In fact, uh, we have seen the number of people coming down to demonstrate in front of the White House swell quite a bit uh, ever since uh, peaceful protesters were, were forcibly moved out of the way by the federal police. So people have come down to peaceably protest uh, and, and um, police themselves in some ways. So if they see somebody who is not there for a peaceful protest and bent on destruction, uh, we've seen the crowds deal with them. Do you get uh, some kind of advance word from the organizers of these protests about what their intentions are? H how do you get information, intelligence about what's going on? Well, sometimes um, people who are uh, who organize frequently in Washington D.C. will reach out uh, to our Metropolitan Police Department or to our Homeland Security Department uh, and give us a heads up. Other times, uh, we are listening to intelligence, monitoring social media, so that we have a good gauge on how many people are coming and how many uh, staff we need to manage traffic, close streets, and make sure people are safe. Uh, we think this Saturday um, we're going to have a, a larger crowd uh, in D.C., uh, and we'll make some determinations uh, about uh, what we need in terms of staffing uh, and if we need to reinstate uh, our curfew on that day. Who has control, uh, Mayor Bowser, of keeping the peace in Washington, D.C.? Is it the D.C. police or is it uh, the National Guard, some of the troops uh, that, have been, uh, that have come in from elsewhere? Well, you're highlighting um, the unique status of Washington, D.C. We're the capital city. We're a federal district. We're 700,000 federal, uh, we're, excuse me, 700,000 tax-paying Americans. Uh, and I'm the mayor, governor, county executive all at once. Um, but because we are not a state, um, the federal government can encroach on our autonomy uh, and bring in uh, federal forces to protect federal assets, uh, and that's what we see in D.C. Uh, I am uh, the, the mayor. We have a police force of 4,000 men and women who protect D.C. every single day, uh, who support First Amendment demonstrations, uh, and the police chief and, and that force report to me. So you were critical, uh, Mayor, earlier this week when President Trump uh, it, his administration ordered the clearing out of peaceful protesters around the White House so that the president could walk over uh, to St. John's Church, uh, that scene where he had his uh, photograph taken holding the Bible. Um, and yet it is it, the, the federal government does have control over uh, over that area, does it not? Um, the federal government and everybody who works for it uh, swears an oath to the Constitution of the United States that allows Americans to peaceably protest, to exercise their First Amendment rights. Uh, and what I witnessed, um, from what I could see, you know, what I think the world could see, uh, is that those people were peaceably protesting. Uh, and the specter of uh, federal police or other you know, releasing munitions to clear the way um, so the president could make a political statement uh, is abhorrent. And do you, I mean, are, are you getting a sense right now that uh, the administration is going to hold back uh, in, in some way? It's, it's 
uh, being prepared to deploy federal troops? Are you getting any sort of signal through your communication with the, uh, with the White House, with the Justice Department? Well, let, let me say this. Um, we, first of all, think that there is a legal question about the president's ability to call in out-of-state National Guard into the District of Columbia, guard that I have not uh, requested as mayor. Uh, and we, we push back very hard on, on that. They need to deal with, with that question, and that we think there's some other steps that the president needs to take to do that. We don't know on whose authority um, that these troops are, are acting. Uh, and this is a similar uh, question that was raised by the Speaker of the House uh, to the President uh, in a letter uh, today. Uh, what we know and has been announced by uh, the Secretary of the Army uh, is that the, the active duty military troops, Army personnel who were staged around Washington, D.C., uh, are being sent back to their home base, to their, their, home, um, their home stations. And does that give you peace of mind? Are you confident they won't be called back again? I, I, we can't have peace of mind in Washington, D.C. until we have full autonomy and we're just like every other American and we become the 51st state. But you asked me if that makes me feel good, if that makes me feel secure. I don't think any American can feel secure if they watch uh, the President of the United States a move on American citizens with active duty military troops. Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser. Mayor Bowser, thank you very much. Thank you. And we would ask all of you to please join us Friday night, tomorrow night, for Race Matters, America in Crisis, a PBS NewsHour primetime special. At the end of this difficult week, we explore this anguished moment and how we move ahead. Over the past few days, as protesters have taken to the streets, the president's talk about using military force on the demonstrators has generated a backlash among a number of former senior military officers. The Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff have also been criticized for their actions and what they have said. Nick Schifrin has that story. Nick Schifrin has that story. Judy, that criticism has become a chorus, and unlike the last few months, it's all on the record. Take a look at this statement from James Mattis, retired Secretary of Defense, Militarizing our response, as we witnessed in Washington, D.C., sets up a conflict, a false conflict, between the military and civilian society. Former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Martin Dempsey, criticized the current Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper's words, writing, quote, America is not a battleground. Our fellow citizens are not the enemy. And recently retired commander of Special Operations Command, General Tony Thomas, wrote, the battle space of America? Not what America needs to hear. To talk about this, I'm joined by retired Army General Carter Hamm, who over his 38-year career commanded troops in Iraq, ran U.S. Army Europe, and U.S. Africa Command. General Hamm, welcome to the NewsHour. Thank you very much. Why is there so much criticism and fear among retired officials, but also some current officials who I'm talking about, who I'm talking to, about the idea of sending active duty troops into the United States? 
Well, thanks, Nick. It, it's a great question. And uh, in our nation, we have a long tradition, going back to the founding of the nation, of uh, concern, even expressed in the Declaration of Independence and certainly in the Constitution, a concern about the employment of federal active duty uh, armed forces within the boundaries of the United States for domestic security purposes. And so I think that's what we're seeing play out, is that that long-held tradition uh, of concern about using the military inside the U.S. The U.S. armed forces exist to protect the nation. They're not well-suited for policing communities. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism, as uh, Judy mentioned in the introduction to this segment, of the leadership of the military. And let's go back to Monday afternoon, evening. President Trump walks out of the White House. With him is Secretary Esper. And Secretary Esper ends up in a photo op in front of a burned-out church. Now, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, had been in that group, but he hung back while that photo op happened. Do you believe Milley was concerned about the idea of the military being dragged into politics if someone like him ended up in that photo op? So all of the secretaries of defense and chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, with whom I have had the privilege of serving, have all worked very, very hard uh, to keep uh, from politicizing the uh, armed forces of the United States for, for understandable purposes, uh, and I think largely have, have been successful in that regard. And so I think when it became uh, apparent that, uh, that, that Monday evening's events were, were intended for a political purpose, I think it was appropriate uh, for the senior ranking officer of the armed forces to not participate in that. Do you believe over the last three-plus years it's been harder for the military to stay out of politics and be seen to stay out of politics? Well, it's always hard because the, because the, 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 the decisions uh, regarding the employment of armed forces uh, are, are, have an inherently political aspect to them. Uh, and so that's, that makes it quite difficult. That's, that, to me, is very different than than uh, using the military for exclusively political purposes. So it, it is challenging even in the best of times. And I think certainly, as we've seen over the past few weeks, uh, it has been difficult, uh, uh, particularly on Monday evening, I think difficult for the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to work hard to keep from politicizing the military. You know, that trust that America has in its armed forces is well-earned and, in my opinion, richly deserved, but it's fragile. And so I think the leaders of the military, both civilian and, and military, understand that and work very, very hard to make sure that, that nothing interferes in that bond of trust that must exist between the nation and its armed forces. General, I want to take you back to uh, Tuesday after that photo op. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, wrote this memo. He sent it to, to the combatant commanders, the service commanders, service chiefs, and he handwrote something. We all committed our lives to the idea that is America. We will stay true to that oath and the American people. How concerned are some military members that, that you're probably talking to that the active duty military could be asked to do something that would be against that oath? Well, there is concern. So first of all, let me talk. I, I've known Mark Milley for a long time. 
long before he became a general. Uh, and, and I, you know, those handwritten words, uh, that comes from the heart uh, of, of General Mark Milley. He, he, I'm confident he believes that with all of his heart and soul, and he takes very seriously the oath of office that he and every other person in uniform take. So that, I, I think he was reminding the force, be true to that oath. That's the tie that binds us in tough times. Broadly across the force, um, I, I think there is concern. That, you know, that the armed forces, again, are, are not trained, manned, equipped, prepared uh, for employment in, in domestic uh, purposes. The National Guard is. Uh, the men and women of the National Guard of the, the, the 50 states and the, and the, uh, the district and the territories uh, operating under legitimate civilian control of the, of the governors, uh, they, they, are the, they are the right backstop when law enforcement uh, uh, no longer has the capacity. General, to I, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. To, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I've, I've only got 30 seconds. I want to ask about that point. The National Guard in the states are being led by the governors. We just heard the, the mayor of Washington, D.C., criticize the fact that the Guard in D.C. have gone from 1,200 to over 4,500. Are, are you, do you believe that uh, so many National Guard on the streets of D.C. Uh, could be a problem? Well, you know, the District of Columbia, as the mayor indicated, is a unique uh, environment. It is a federal entity. The National Guard in the District of Columbia operates under federal authority. Uh, and as the mayor indicated, that uh, that she is uh, uh, questioned some of the, the policy, the legal authorities for the, uh, the uh, use of National Guard from other states uh, in the city of Washington, D.C. That has yet to play out. It is not, however, uncommon uh, for, the dis for the National Guard of various states to work very closely General, uh, sorry, I'm gonna... in terms of emergency. Th th thank you. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off. We're, we're just out of time. General Carter Ham, thank you very much, sir. Thanks, Nick. In the day's other news, amid the nationwide protest demanding racial justice, the state of Virginia is taking down a famous statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Governor Ralph Northam announced that the statue will be removed from Richmond's well-known Monument Avenue. He said the state can no longer showcase a cause that sought to preserve slavery. I believe in a Virginia that studies its past in an honest way. I believe that when we learn more, we can do more. And I believe that when we learn more, when we take that honest look at our past, we must do more than just talk about the future. We must take action. The Lee statue is going into temporary storage. Business closings and cutbacks during the COVID-19 pandemic have claimed another 1.9 million jobs. Today's report means that more than 21 million American workers are currently receiving jobless benefits. The number peaked two weeks ago at nearly 25 million. The head of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention voiced fresh fears today that protests drawing thousands into the streets will lead to new coronavirus outbreaks. 
Robert Redfield told a congressional hearing that demonstrators need to find out if they're infected. Those individuals um, that have part partaken in these uh, peaceful protests or uh, been out protesting, uh, and particularly if they're in metropolitan areas that really haven't controlled the outbreak, we really want those individuals to highly consider uh, being evaluated and get tested. Meanwhile, the British medical journal, The Lancet, retracted a sharply negative study on using hydroxychloroquine to fight the coronavirus. The data had come under growing criticism. And the United Nations warned that the pandemic is disrupting vaccinations for measles and polio and putting millions of children at risk around the world. In Hong Kong, thousands of people defied a police ban to mark the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square crackdown in Beijing. They held a candlelight vigil to remember hundreds and possibly thousands of protesters killed by the Chinese military on June 4, 1989. Police did little to stop them. We'll have more on Hong Kong right after the news summary. A U.S. Navy veteran headed home from Iran today in a prisoner deal. Michael White had been held since he was convicted of insulting Iran's supreme leader in 2018. In return for White's release, U.S. officials agreed not to seek more prison time for an Iranian-American doctor who violated sanctions on Iran. Back in this country, the National Basketball Association has agreed to restart its regular season in late July. Competition was halted in March by the COVID-19 pandemic. Remaining regular season games will take place at Walt Disney World in Florida. And on Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average gained about 12 points to close at 26,281. But the Nasdaq fell 67 points and the S&P 500 slipped 10. Still to come on the news. Good evening, good morning, whatever time it is, wherever you are, God is right there with you. You're listening to House Production Gospel, Blog Talk Radio. You can find us all over the internet at www.blogtalkradio.com slash housey-production-gospel. We are your internet radio station. Sit back and relax and enjoy more of House Production Gospel, Blog Talk Radio.
This is Ken Grady, co-host of Gospel Music Today, and we're honored to be part of the gospel music programming brought to you by House C Productions Gospel. Check out Gospel Music Today for the latest news, guests, concert updates, and exclusive live gospel concerts from the world of Southern Gospel. House C Productions Gospel and Gospel Music Today, bringing families, communities, and churches together www.notoriousdesigns.com for award-winning graphics and web designer. Check out www.notoriousdesigns.com. You listen to How C Production Gospel Blog Talk Radio. www.blogtalkradio.com. How C Production Gospel. We are your internet radio. Good evening, good morning, whatever time it is, wherever you are, God is right there with you. You're listening to House C Production Gospel, Blog Talk Radio. You can find us all over the internet at www.blogtalkradio.com slash house production gospel. We are your internet radio station. Sit back and relax and enjoy more of House C Production Gospel, Blog Talk Radio. Radio http colon slash slash www.blogtalkradio.com slash house dash productions dash gospel Thursday Thank Gospel you. America host Freddie C. Howard from down south house e production gospel the actress Alabama enjoy Thank you host Freddie C. Howard <laughs> 